Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. Here we go. Here we go. So good morning, Mike. Good morning. So I, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about all the tools that are at our disposal here uh, when it comes to making sense of, of life. And it, I'm noticing the increasing amount of options in my own life um, that is actually leading to a lot of uh, a lot of damage. So there's information everywhere, and uh, you know it's funny the the this you still hear this notion of if if everyone can have enough information, um, we can we can solve all the problems, and yet we see in news outlets, we see in social media. I'm not sure that's the case uh, because we have so much information, but uh, first, it's hard to know what to pay attention to. And second, it's it's hard to know how to use these tools. So my my dilemma a little bit is how do I um, how do I stay aware of, of and I think we've talked a little bit about this in the past, but stay aware of what's newsworthy or, or sort through some of this muck that's out there. Um, and yet at the same time, how do I not get consumed by this technology, whether it's something as simple as, you know, the, my Google newsfeed that pops up anytime I open a new browser, you know, it's, it's all around me. So how do I, how do I not get inundated by that? But how do I not just retreat and run away? Um, I'm, I'm finding it more and more difficult to know where that line is. Yeah. Good, good question. Uh, so listeners, just so you know, we don't uh, really script these ahead of time. It's not like Pat T something up and I've got this lecture in front of me and say, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think you you just gave away the game in the last line there. You say, so where's the line? Yeah. And, that, and I don't think that line exists. Sure. Yeah. So I think that's where we'll start here okay. this morning, Pat. Here we are before the sun is up. Um, <laughs> we're just looking for lesser sympathy when we say that. <laughs> oh, these are great guys again so early. Um, it struck me in your question that, that when you say, how do we use technology? Um, I think the better question is, how do we not get used by technology? That's good. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly right. Great question. What's the answer? <laughs> well, we've talked a bit about it, but we're not going to spend a lot of time uh, earlier. Uh, Tristan Harris, um, who was a Google programmer, you know, he, he when he had his epiphany was at a break during one of these big Silicon Valley conferences, and he's with all the glitterati and the rest, and he said every single break, everyone's head is bent over over their iPhone or their mobile device, and he just thought, my God, what have I done? Mm. But he realized what he'd done. They, he was one of the many engineers who, uh, thin slicing almost down to nanoseconds, how can you get someone to 
stay on their site for one second more or two or three because the business model is not information. The business model is attention. Advertisers are paying Google and the rest. And Google promises, and they're not the only one, we're using Google as an icon for all social technologies, TikTok and the rest. Their business model is advertisers, and advertisers are paying for attention, which is uh, measured in seconds, actually microseconds. And so they know how to use you. So anyone that thinks they're on top of their device is probably not. Well, you know, that's that's a good point. I hadn't thought about while I think I have this restraint or self-control, I am I'm literally going up against that uh, many times hundreds of programmers and neuroscientists that are actively working against my own self-control yeah that's right it's um i mean that's exactly right pat they um you know it's it's um it's just good to recognize a few baseline realities we might say and one is uh, while we are made in the image of god our brains which are you know, the more you read about them, their their complexity and immensity is really does bear out the image of God. It is they are amazing what the processing they can do, but they're processing apparently somewhere in the neighborhood on average of fourteen million bits of information every second. There ain't no way, and you know what, that you can stay on top of that. In fact. The neuroscientists guesstimate it's somewhere in the range of 5% or, another way to put it, about four thoughts you could be constantly juggling like four balls. And the rest of it is just flying through you. Which I find fascinating that there are the four main themes of the gospel are creation, fall, redemption, and the final consummation. But... So you could be, we could be on this, or you could be listening to this podcast and looking at something on a device and uh, brewing your coffee and God knows what else. But the rest of it that's impacting you, you are unaware of. So the, uh, the beginning of wisdom might be the fear of just exactly how God made the brain to work. Fear meaning respecting it, working within the limitations of it. And so the enlightenment, which is called basically the unconstrained view, is basically the more information, the merrier we will be. The more, the merrier. And prior to that, which I think is more biblical view, is the constrained view. The constraint is limits are helpful. They're actually 
give you wisdom. Actually, it's demonstrated they produce more innovation, which is renewal. And they're just plain wise because they, uh, they, um, they respect the fact that uh, most, most of the things we now call news are not newsworthy. I like that. I mean, quick example is who won the NCAA uh, uh, basketball championship three years ago? Yeah, no idea. Oh my God, it was so newsworthy just a short time ago. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. So if we haven't mentioned it before, and by the way, it's worth us revisiting some of these. Uh, C. John Somerville's little book, easy to read. How the news makes us dumb. He's Professor Emeritus at the University of Florida, believer, InterVarsity book. And uh, one of the best books I've ever read on this. Not, not the only one, but the, one of the best. Because first, it's accessible. And here's what I mean. So Somerville makes a good point. Or let me ask you, Pat. Um, Jesus, 33 years on the earth. What percentage of his time is has been recorded by eyewitnesses and historians and that we have in the Gospels and the Book of Acts today? What percentage of his life? Oh my, a very small. Out very of small. Thirty-three years. Yeah. Yeah. So apparently, because God is a chronicler, he inspiring us to write Book of Chronicles, amongst other books. Apparently, most of his life wasn't newsworthy. Yeah, I mean, that makes, I see what you're saying. There's the Son of God walking the earth, incarnate. And it, it got in his infinite wisdom. The fullness of time, in his opinion, was long before Facebook. Today, we'd be saying, oh, no, the fullness of time for him to come would have been once we have Facebook. Because then we could have them. <laughs> TMZ could be on him. I mean, millions would be outside his condo in uh, Beaver Creek, Colorado. So every time he comes out for anything, God's really, God, God should have thought that one through. Oh my! I was going to say we don't want to get struck with lightning here, but are you really sure that was the fullness of times? <laughs> so um, Somerville's book, by the way, is written before the explosion of the, the acceleration of social media. So if you never read the book, the thrust of it is that um, <clears throat> news used to be considered to be periodical. They were so, hence they were publications were called periodicals um, because it only happens. Uh, we might al almost say um, periodically, but not regularly. Periodicals then, here's a slight switcheroo on news became periodical became regularly periodical and then with the daily newspaper news now became daily and so you had to manufacture news or give the impression because ads drive the news business advertising that this is newsworthy stuff and then you are, you are now filling bulk. And hence, the problem we have today. It's what T.S. Eliot over 100 years ago or somewhere in the past wrote. 
where is the wisdom we have lost in the information? You know, it's wild. And it, the, what the image that popped in my head, <laughs> comically, I hate, I hate uh, regularly scheduled meetings at work that are for projects that are, you know, you, you'll get those on your calendar that are like, you know, let's have a biweekly sync on this. And the reason I hate those is I'd rather us say, well, what's the next important thing we need to talk about? Does everyone yeah. know when we're going to get there? And when everyone's ready, because we're there, let's get together and talk about it. Because what happens is you sit in these biweekly sinks and everyone will come into the room, which by the way is very expensive to do, to stop everyone during their day, mm -hmm. come into the room. And then sometimes it'll be like, well, there's not really anything to talk about. Does anyone have anything to say? You know, and it's just like, <laughs> oh my gosh, we just wasted so much time. But what I've noticed now with, uh, with Slack and different chat platforms is you get almost a similar thing to what you get with social media, which is just this like, everything is instant breaking news and the right. distractions are everywhere. And so you just don't know what to spend your time on anymore. And it's just so funny, like that's like a micro level that I see even in the workplace that I've never connected to. It's so similar to the the macro of what we have today in terms of news and how it's it just distracts you to the extent that you can't actually be effective in doing anything. That's a good point. There's a fair, uh, I've read at least a fair amount of reporting on people being more productive workers uh, during the pandemic. Because fewer distractions maybe not um, at home for some but <laughs> yeah but yes but i mean for most uh, there's actually a more productive um because of fewer interruptions yeah so it's a good book by uh, her name is gay me it's called distracted and uh again the the main the big nugget in hers which is so good is all communication is interruption Uh, that's good. Yeah. So for us, what we're trying to discuss here, Pat, is to ponder something, is to be, which leads to wisdom, is to be uninterrupted. Sure. See, now Pat's saying, look, I can't say anything for a moment because it's going to be... <laughs> Give everyone a minute to take that in. Uh, okay. <laughs> I mean, part of what um, I appreciate about older traditions is too often, you know, in the church, you just got to fill every last second with noise. And what you lose is where is the wisdom we have lost in information? The, the point on them, by the way, the, in the book Distracted, it overlaps with Nicholas Carr's excellent book, The Shallows. Yeah. Where again, <clears throat> the, the more you are in, interrupted, and again, interrupted is you might be talking to someone and the phone goes off. So you, well, you're not listening anymore. And I, oh, I, I got a, uh, oh, I just got a ping. I got an email. Mm -hmm. I got an email on my watch. Uh, I got a, we are so in touch, supposedly. We're really out of touch. 
because what happens is you lose the capacity to ponder, to imagine, which are all more uh, functions of the right hemisphere of the brain. And we are driving ourselves deeper into the bowels of the left hemisphere where everything is immediate. Hence, one of the historians say one of the things that afflicts American Christianity, evangelicalism in particular, is immediatism. We're going to change the world now. We got to do this now. We're going to get this thing now. We're going to get this project up now. We're going to, and immediatism lacks wisdom as to what would it take? What would all the re, what are all the resources necessary, humanly speaking, to actually do what you claim your church wants to do in your city, in your congregation, in your life? And you see there's not margin or room for example, the spiritual disciplines, over 20, most believers, if you couldn't even name two or three, and you don't have not only the, the margins, but you don't have the neural pathways to even in any way apprehend what we're talking about here. It's just you can't, you literally can't pay attention long enough. It's what advertisers know. And I mean, tip your hat when they get it right. I'm not saying it's great, but politicians understand this. It's called what? Soundbite. Mm. And soundbite is those who measure it is actually shrunk. I haven't read the latest, but it's somewhere around the neighborhood of two seconds. Now, I would think it's something that's pretty, it would, if you're a believer in listening to this, I would think and I would hope that in some way that would impact you in a way that you would go, oh my God, how in heaven's name could we ever begin to apprehend the immensity of God? of the gospel. If we can't pay attention on average for any more than two to three seconds. <laughs> We've talked about spiritual disciplines and yeah, I think they, and I guess what you would recommend is they do help. I don't combat that, that you help uh, expand our ability to to ponder, to wonder. Um, but then I guess that's that, that gets me back to this point of as we pull away and that we, we, we create more space for that. Um, as we as we disengage from our phones, turn off notifications, et cetera. Uh, at, at what point or how, how do you recommend we, we get back in? Cause it, it almost feels like as we, as we get away from the addiction of, of gambling, 
how do we how do we still know what goes on in the casino you know like that's that's kind of mm-hmm. what's happening we have these slot machines at our disposal to constantly feel the addiction how do we how do we how do we wisely pay attention yet not get used like you said yeah i had a um, that's a great question i had a conversation with um one of my sons on this very uh, um, topic, he sent me a New York Times article by a, a really wonderful evangelical Otto Wheaton College, and he used the term addiction. I said, I'm not sure it's addiction. That's a therapeutic term because then you treat an addiction. I think it's idolatry. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. I never hear Jesus. I never hear the, the prophets saying you are addicted to. <laughs> uh, I'm just sorry. I'm sorry. Too many mental images flying through prophets. Now, I don't mean to offend you guys, but that ain't it. You're addicted to Baal. Uh, it's called idolatry. And what is what is the uh, what does an what does an idol do? Jeremiah said. sure very G- thing jesus uh, um accused the uh, pharisees of being and they said we are and said you're blind you're blind idols blind now i would think they're blind i think where this is where n- neuroscience is helping us because no one who can see would think they're blind that's what the pharisees say what well, we see and he goes, well, if you did see, you wouldn't be blind. But because you don't see, you are blind. But, you know, you're going, what? Jesus, what? Well, here's here's a way to think about it. Let's just say God so created the human brain that he knew that you're going to get inundated with images, impressions, experiences, touches, tastes, all these things. As Flannery O'Connor famously said in 1963, that the things we taste and touch and feel affect us long before we believe anything at all. So let's say, let's imagine O'Connor was in the suburbs of the truth. I think she was spot on. And of course, God, in his infinite wisdom, would so create the brain that of the 14 million bits that the brain, Adam and Eve's brain process, because I don't think the brain has changed, certainly that much. God, in his infinite wisdom, Father, Son, Spirit, say, let's create it so that they would have to be wise to know that 95 plus percent cannot interrupt them, should not interrupt them. They will know, ignore it. And they will know what to pay attention to. Otherwise, they will be blind. So blindness, Pat, is not, I can't see. It is, can't see the right things. Yeah. We as a faith can't see what we ought to see. I'll give you a quick example, by the way, because this isn't original with me. I'm certainly seeing more writers seeing it now. 
up until 500 years ago before the enlightenment when people saw the cross they saw the marriage bed as augustine put it and crosses had the nuptial circle depicting marriage and the cross was not only redemption for sins this is actually was in the lectionary readings two weeks ago the prophets saying on that holy hill in the holy city will be and alludes to blood and banquet since then the average cross in the western world have been stripped out of the circle look at your cross this sunday if it has one and you'll see simply redemption blood death and resurrection of christ you won't see the imagery of marriage betrothed you just won't see it you'll be blind and uh, so we have actually i think it's an idolatry idolatries blind so i i would say the problem is not yeah i got a little addiction problem with technology no i mean pornography thrives by the idolatry of sex and sexuality not the love of it as god loves it but the idolatry and idolatry by definition is anything or anyone other than god that gives you a sense of well-being the biblical word is shalom a sense of oh, i gotta have this to feel better hence you know well and i know because i've experienced it the phantom pain in uh, the, the pants pocket if you go outside and you you go where's my phone where's my phone <laughs> and what you're saying is i've lost my sense of well-being why i don't have my phone mm. so i'm now i'm not I'm, I'm no longer in touch oh so there is no god who could tell you this well yeah i'm sure but that's kind of an abstraction i'm telling you my body is feeling this panic so again the model is driven by advertisers advertisers saying how do we keep them better in touch with it well okay create on another device or oh, you have another one yeah but another device that will call find your phone <laughs> ah the sense of well-being comes back <laughs> That's an idol. I mean, we can laugh. I mean, we, it's, here's another, here's where an idol blinds us. We scratch our head at the Pharisees. We scratch our head at the Israelites worshiping Baal and go, mm -hmm. what is wrong with them? Mm -hmm. And of course, I pray to God that 50 years out, there's a renewal of what it means to be a human being and humane technology that they look back at us and go, what was wrong with those people? Yeah. Why couldn't they see it? So we do have our prophets that we ignore. Neil Postman, actually Jacques Ellul was first I ever read, I think his book was about mid-1960s, called The Technological Society. Hmm. And he said, there's 76 questions we ought to be addressing. 
I have never heard a Christian. Well, I'm sure there are Christians that have tried to address them, but none that I know. Few that I've read. And then uh, Neil Postman's fun little provocative book, Technopoly. A term he coined, Technopoly, when technology rules. In other words, technologies in and of themselves are um, inherently good, inherently can be inherently beneficial. He coined technology and monopoly and put them together. And his point was in a technopoly, technology monopolizes, has a monopoly on your thought. So if you get something from Verizon or well, pick a number, Verizon, pick any internet provider, and they go, hey, faster internet. You're going to go? Yeah. Hell yes. <laughs> I'm in. That's, See, that's, a, that's a, yeah. So if, if the, you know, so if the, if the deluge, if the, if the water hose pumping information into your mouth that you're gagging on, well, here's the solution. More. What? But that's what, that's what a technopoly does. And um, it does go back to part of it, the didactic enlightenment that uh, coincided with the same time that American evangelicalism was birthed. And uh, that enlightenment is best intoned by Thomas Jefferson, who said, enlighten the people generally, and tyranny will disappear like the dew in the morning. Um, all we lack is enough information. And so you have the, the advent of the service become, I mean, the sermon becomes the centerpiece of the sermon and lengthier and more packed with information. And then you have small groups starting to get even more information into you and then books and gosh, even podcasts. What are they thinking? And then uh, <clears throat> it's all under the guise of, we're not holy because we just don't know enough. Or we don't read, I'd say, we don't have information, enough information. I retracted what I said about we don't know enough because knowledge coming out of our tradition, the deepest tradition, is bodily. So in that sense, we don't know what we ought to know. But we do know all that our body can handle, and it's not the right stuff. We know stuff that simply is not newsworthy. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying, and you know what's coming to mind is this, this spectrum in my head. Uh, as as uh, my my former self would immediately think what uh where i even started today but i would just probably stay there which is what can i as an individual do about this for me very very individual you know so i'm thinking well i can i can turn off my notifications on my phone be more mindful of that and what can i do and i think where you have challenged me in the past but is is opening it up and helping me get out of that individual frame and understand well as a as a society that's that's also our call as believers uh the, the shalom the, the well-being of others and so like that's the in my mind one of the other ends of the spectrum 
is actually getting involved in, in trying to shift technology from a cultural perspective. Um, would you say that's accurate? So yeah. Far? Yeah. yeah. So I, I think that's, it's important to, to process because there is a step there, uh, which is, is typically, I think, the disconnect between what, what someone, when someone first hears some of the things that we talk about and uh, the, the leap there is to get outside of yourself to, to break out of the individual mindset and that perspective. And, and I mean, I think that's, that's an important first step because there's, when you start to realize that and, and realize God's call for us as believers is not just to be a bunch of individuals that love him individually. His call for us as believers is also to seek the well-being, to love neighbor, love God. And there's a, there's an important lament in that, I think. Mm-hmm. That if you skip yep. that step of lament, uh, self-righteousness can flare up, pride can flare up. So that lament is the piece to recognize we are here now as a society worshiping this idolatry and as Christians, as believers, often touted as a quote-unquote Christian nation, you know, somehow we're still here. And so we can get angry and frustrated about all of the things in society, but we have also let us get here. And that's an important lament to, to process and to, to grieve. Yes. Yep. So Thank once, <laughs> once we take a minute to ponder that, <laughs> that's all you're going to get, Pat. <laughs> I, I am, I'm curious then, you know, instead of just staying in my individual frame of, okay, that's great. It is unfortunate and, and sad and, and whatever, you know, hopefully I have process to, to genuinely have my soul grieve a little bit. The fact that we are here, but once I've, once I've made it through that, how, how do I then aside from maybe quitting my job and going and trying to, to sync up with Tristan Harris and, and take part in what he's doing, you know, <clears throat> where's where's the next step for 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 your your average joe here who's trying to live this out yeah um a couple things come to mind but but a good word again um, we said it before but technology um which can um it, it the you know the root of the word is to it in a way is to assemble these things in a way that it was designed to be for uh, what's beneficial for all, but it's also where technique, and you can get caught up in technique and, and forget um, techne, the Greek, the, the idea of, um, but is this actually beneficial? So that's why technology mm-hmm. was originally a branch of moral philosophy. And I know that's going to blow a few minds or pop question marks all through your mind but it's because technology can only the answer it only uh, enables i'm using that word in a good way it, it it enables we can we can do something so i can be in downtown annapolis within a few minutes because of technologies but the question is, what technology cannot answer is, but ought we be doing that? 
And that's not, so if you're one of these gum chomping, typical Americans, I'm a practical man. I love how G.K. Chesterton puts it in the Father Brown series. He said, uh, well, if you don't consider what we're considering here, uh, you'll, you'll never be a practical man. You, you're practically, you're practically an idiot. <laughs> uh, idiot comes from the Greek idea of individual. Idiosyncrasies, what have you. So basically you are the bottom line for what's practical and useful. And when you are the center of the universe, you are, you, you just idolized yourself. You, you are, you're caught up in the enlightenment idolatry that I don't give a damn what technologies or traditions or what have you taught. I will determine in the end of the day what's right, what's right for me. I will determine my truth. And so you can't tell me not to get on technologies. Um, that is the idolatry of the enlightenment. It comes right out of it. And we are caught up in it in a faith, as a faith tradition. And so you ask, what are the things that can be done? Um, you know, I'm reminded here of a, a book that probably hardly anybody's ever read, but uh, read it when I went to cemetery. I'm sorry, seminary. And um, it's called Mortimer, by Mortimer Adler, How to Read a Book. I know that's a really inspiring title. <laughs> but Adler was uh, at the forefront of kind of resurrecting the liberal arts great books curriculum, which became central to, it became the defining mark now of the University of Chicago. And then a few other schools that have tried to emulate that. But Adler's book is important because he lists all sorts of ways you ought to read a book. But one is imaginatively, one is selectively, and one is to understand if it wasn't his book, but you, you'll, you'll get this idea from it, that uh, a lot of great books start with a, a, a seminal idea that is, that is newsworthy. But publishers will say, we can't publish it if you don't jack the thing up to 150 pages. So you have to read in such a way that you go, ah, that's the takeaway. Because you'll forget the rest. So we talked earlier about uh, C. John Somerville's book. The big takeaway is mm, news makes you dumb because most of what you think is news is not news because news is, is chronicles. It's news-worthy events. And the rest ought to pass right through you. So if you start there, then the, the discipline of silence and solitude for me has been most helpful to begin to see through Facebook when a friend helped me get on it like I don't know, 20 years ago and, or to see through, yeah, you can tell I haven't done a thing with it. And I'm reminded of William Blake's poem in this regard, Pat. And I do think poetry can help us here. So Blake, um, 1757 to 1782, but here's a portion of his poem, The Everlasting Gospel. 
This life's dim windows of the soul distorts the heavens from pole to pole and leads you to believe a lie when you see with, not through the eyes. This life's dim windows of the soul distorts the heavens from pole to pole and leads you to believe a lie when you see with, not through, the eye. Pat, you know, Pat, uh, listeners, uh, we're part of a pilot project to restore, to return to the enchanted background. The enchanted background, in other words, prior to the enlightenment, People did not see two things like scripture or literature or events. They saw through them. That's right. There is such a thing as idolizing the Bible. Idolizing the words versus the person. Persons. God. And um, so seeing through is what... And I really don't care how people react to this or respond to it. The visceral feeling I had when my friend set up the Facebook page and I looked at it and I saw through to what scripture says about face. And I saw through to what scripture talks about is newsworthy. And I just literally could not move my body, my fingers to the keyboard to start using it. I just couldn't. And by the way, so I'll, I'll use what I think is the, the, the mysterious but main portal into the gospel, your body and marriage. And a holy marriage of a couple who are deeply in love in the right way would feel the same thing if the adulteress comes before them, either one. And they go, my body, I just can't do that. Hmm. And that adulteress is a technology, a means to help do something. And in that hauntingly, hauntingly told story in the Proverbs of the man who is lured by all of the rose petals and fragrances into the seductress's bed and right there at the moment of climax as he the imagery is he's on top of her and he sees the bed posts are sunk in sheol now he sees through and it's too late so pat i don't i just think 500 years into this, we don't see through these things. We only see to them. I hear this in sermons. Here's what this verse says. Let me give you three points. Bang, 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 bang. It is so wooden, and they don't see right through it. And all the mystery and the marvel and the wow of why, for example, they're doing this in the temple. It's more important that we memorize all things that happen in the temple. But we can't ask the question, well, why? I, I don't know. God likes a big temple, I guess. In all the mystery of the temple depicting the bride is gone. 
we see too, not through. So Blake was right because when he said distorts the heavens, plural, Blake understood the scripture talks about in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So inside of all of created reality, that's not eternity, that's the heavens and the earth, it is always prone to distortion. And then when it's distorted, we only see two things, we don't see through them. And so I'm not on TikTok, Facebook, blah, blah. I mean, I'm not on, and it's not because, and I don't go around saying, it's not a rant against them, it's that my body viscerally goes, this is not newsworthy. This is, this is not humane. This is not getting us anywhere. We said it before, but <clears throat> leave it to the poets to help us. And Coleridge, 150, 60 years ago, when Samuel Morse developed Morse code, it was ecstatic now that, as he put it, California can know what Texas is doing. <laughs> Coleridge said, well, that assumes we ought to know. Texas ought to know what California, uh, Maine is doing, or however they put it. They chose states pretty far apart. I think that's brilliant. That's seeing through the technology. And so when Postman wrote Technopoly, not a believer, but he asked this question, how do our technologies change how we imagine God and in relationship with God? I never picked up that Postman was a believer. That's a darn good question. Hmm. Yeah, it is. How many believers do you know are wrestling with that? <laughs> and to your point about business, exactly right. And again, put in the marriage, the way a healthy marriage works. Can you imagine if you and your wife, okay, now we're going to have, at this point, we kiss. Then every week we stop whatever we're doing and we have this meeting and then every week we go over here and we make love and then we over here <laughs> i'm just thinking of <laughs> oh no i won't yeah, yeah I mean, it's just, it just could be nsa is recording all this so we've got to uh, it just it's helpful in an embodied faith if you believe that this is an embodied faith the word became flesh flesh is inherently good it of course can be corrupted is then you 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 will see through life through your flesh and my flesh belongs to kathy my wife and her body belongs to me and you look through our marriage and you go we never have a marriage run that way yeah never you know, it's it's f f wild that you were talking about like your body couldn't <clears throat> couldn't even go back to or you know couldn't engage with Facebook and I and uh, I've had a couple conversations with my wife. She even was just talking about how even with Instagram, um, the example was just like she she spent a good chunk of time away from Instagram and then came back to it because um, she 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 does she follows other moms and um, likes to see. Uh, 
um, just, you know, they have good advice on some things, but she was like, but I, I'm just, I'm kind of questioning if I even want to stay on this. Cause she's, you can just tell like in a, in a embodied way, she is becoming increasingly apprehensive. Like she, she's far more sensitive to these tugs and these other deeper frustrations. And, and I felt similar things, but it makes me realize that even to answer my own question earlier, I'm probably not the one to be doing anything about this because I have the information and I maybe intellectually understand everything that we've talked about, but I am only just starting and barely starting to, to, to feel and to know, as you mentioned earlier, to know with my body that there's something off here. Ooh. And that, that makes me think, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's probably going to continue to get worse. And the greatest thing I could probably do is hope by the grace of God that as I discover this more, my kids will be able to see through far greater than I can. And they, maybe, maybe they can just glimpse it. Maybe they'll be able to change things, but they, even they may only be able to glimpse beyond the change as their children, hopefully, can fully sense everything you're talking about but that's that's pretty sobering yeah. i think i'm i don't know do you do you do you agree with that i i think yeah i do I'm finding it very sobering right now as we're talking <laughs> so am i i'm saying <laughs> what the heck are we doing actually it's not it's actually two things um i agree pat um the the degree to which you embody it behavior is behavior is more caught than taught and the more you embody it, the more your your kids will benefit. And here's why. I didn't think this. I didn't think this podcast would go here, but I've never really told many people. But what the heck? You're right. I have a bodily, visceral response that has it confused me at first because I couldn't tell anybody. I think it maybe told Kathy. Because she said, you know, you got to get out and do this and this. And I'm not putting throwing Kathy under the bus. I mean, that's not the point. The point is, I just, I, I couldn't find a way to say, I, I just can't do it. I mean, I could push myself. But I just feel like I'm going against my body here. And I, this was the hardest thing for me to begin to feel in church, too. As I would sit there and go, I'm looking around going, People want to love Jesus, they want to do it. And I just feel my battery draining. And when I've said that to people that are attracted to what we're doing, they go, that's it, that's it. Mm -hmm. And it's so it's so hard to try to say to a well-meaning minister who's all, you know, hey, hey, we're positive and what have you, you just say, I know I sound like a party crasher here. I mean, I'm not a party crasher, party pooper. Is uh, my battery is just draining, and I feel it with a lot of technologies, and I, and I feel it with people who I think are caught up in the idolatry of technology. That they are like the Pharisees when Jesus would say something, and they say, "We don't get it. What in heaven's name are you talking about?" Look at this temple. Look at these people. Look at what we got going here. And he just, and it's Jesus, you'll notice, 
I think he felt his battery draining. He would just sigh and go, And I have been around men and women whom I deeply respect and I think are far wiser on these things and more embodied. I think of Karen. I think of uh, a couple of other people I could mention that I noticed when I began to talk about trivial pursuits, unnewsworthy, I would watch their facial and their body the life in our conversation began to ebb. I just felt it. I began to see through it. And I, I would go, they're, the interest is draining out of their face. They're being charitable. They're not saying anything to me. But they're not leaning into this conversation like they were earlier. And I think they're being charitable with me, but they're also thinking... This is neither here nor there, Mike. And that's a great phrase. It's neither here nor there. You know what? If something is nowhere, it's called utopia. We're talking about something that that a year from now, if I go back and say, hey, X, Y, Z, we'll go, oh, really? I don't remember even talking about that. We talked about that? That's how news were unnewsworthy it was. And I am concerned about most of my peers and friends and colleagues and the rest I know, and even in the faith community. They are so buzzed up and shallowed out. I don't think it'll change, Pat until we recognize it's not an addiction. It's not a, oh yeah, I could kind of, yeah, maybe kind of, I'm trying to, like, I'm just kind of trying to, you know, trim back a few minutes here and there. It's it's idolatry. And until we ever come to that point where it's idolatry and repent, probably nothing will change because a, idols don't want to be discovered. B, there's a famous story in the Old Testament that you knock someone's idol over. It's a good way to really tick them off. They're going to get up the next morning and put that idol right back up. Because the juice from the idol, although it's false or it's sugary, you need it. You feel you need it to have that sense of, And the oddity to me, I think the benefit is um, people who are trying to eat better and uh, more natural foods and the rest, because they recognize that technologies have not been necessarily beneficial for our bodies and what we shove into our bodies. And yet we don't think anything, we don't, we don't liken that at all to our souls because we're not an embodied faith. And if we were an embodied faith, we'd understand the window to your soul is through your body. And you at least recognize eating better, eating more natural, if it is natural, organic. Good word. Well, how about 
organic information. And organic information, what Coleridge was getting at, is what used to be called moral proximity. That the knowledge you are mostly responsible for is the knowledge your body touches. And that starts with your own body. It starts with your spouse, your friends. And for Kathy and I, it's been the Hispanic community and because of her work touching that school. Were you, I, yes, with social distancing, yeah. But with the touch, you feed and clothe and try to help on average 400 families that roll through over several hours in a pop-up pantry, you will be touched. And that was Coleridge's concern is that you can read about quick little article in the New York Times on the largest refugee camp in the world now because of the upheaval in Miramar. Women who have been so abused that uh, often dropped off on atolls or islands simply walk into the ocean to drown to, just to get rid of, to stop it. And then you look up and say, hey, hon, what's for dinner? Where's the wisdom we have lost in the information? T.S. Eliot. 